opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome, everyone, to today's panel on the CVTA Explained. I'm today's moderator, Kim Charlson, co-chair of the ACB Audio Description Project. And first of all, I want to recognize our host, our Zoom host today, Monica, who will share the um, CEU code for those who are getting CEU credits for this session. Thank you, Kim. The first CEU code I will share now and the last I will share at the end of the session. The CEU code is 31750. Zero. Again, that is three, one, seven, five, zero. Back to you, Kim. Thank you, Monica. We have a fantastic panel um, planned out for all of you today to learn more about the CVTA, the Communication and Video Technology Accessibility Act which was first introduced in Congress last session um, in November. And with the new Congress, we are hopeful that this great legislation will be reintroduced late this summer um, for our, our efforts legislatively. So I have three extremely knowledgeable people who are going to be discussing the various components of the CBTA with us this afternoon. And um, I'm just going to review their bios right now, and then we'll, um, we'll get started. So not necessarily speaking in this order, but our first presenter that I'll um, introduce to all of you is Karen Peltz-Strauss. And she has spent the past four decades leading nationwide efforts toward adoption of federal policies to ensure that full participation of people with disabilities in our nation's ever-changing communications and video programming environment is is in place. She authored several landmark disability laws, including provisions of the 1996 telecommunications amendments requiring access to telecommunications services and the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act of 2010, the CVAA, which required audio description and accessible advanced communication services. She previously served two tours of duty as the Deputy Chief of the FCC's Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau, where she oversaw the Commission's disability policies on telecommunications, video programming, and internet access. And she spearheaded the creation of the FCC's Disability Advisory Committee, which I happen to co-chair this round, which I'm very proud of. So... Karen is now working with advocates on drafting the Communication and Video 
Technology Accessibility Act, or CVTA, um, which is an update to many of the earlier provisions of accessibility laws um, on the books. Blake Reed is, um, he's a writer and teaches and practices at the intersection of law, policy, and technology. He's a clinical professor, um, an associate professor of law starting in the fall of 2023 at Colorado Law, where he serves as the outgoing um, director of the Samuelson and Glushko Technology Law and Policy Clinic, or TLPC, that's much easier to say, and as the faculty director of the Telecom and Platforms Initiative at the Silicon um, Flatiron Center. He also... um, teaches telecommunications, internet, and intellectual property law at um, Colorado. And our third panelist is likely not to be a stranger to many of you. It is um, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, Clark Rockfall, who has a distinguished career in advocacy work, having spent time working with Verizon Communications and National Industries for the Blind, and I think for the last five years for the American Council of the Blind in a number of capacities, including our lead on CVTA. So I am going to turn it over, first of all, to Clark to talk about a variety of aspects of CVTA, to introduce the legislation to us, break it down, um, and then we'll follow up with uh, Karen and Blake as their portions of our program proceed today. So, Clark, welcome to the panel today. I'm looking forward to hearing your remarks. Thank you so much, Kim, and hello, everyone. As Kim stated, I am Clark Rockfall, your Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. Uh, When I was hired at ACB, uh, Kim Charlson, the then president, was part of the interviewing process. And as as Kim learned about my, my background at Verizon and how the time I was there overlapped with uh, ACB's work, along with with Karen and Blake and others as part of uh, a coalition for accessible technology that worked to pass the CVAA. And even in that interview, Kim planted the seed of a Communications and Video Accessibility Act 2.0. Kim, I don't know if you recall that from some of our early conversations back in 2019. I do indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So as you can tell, this this has been on the forethought, uh, you know, the front of the minds of ACB members of the Audio Description Project for quite some time. The CVTA was uh, groundbreaking legislation that was passed in 2010. And, you know, the Kim and I had that conversation in 2019, and, and here we are in 2023. Uh, so this has been a, a long work in process. 
Um, but I'm excited to be here and share the stage with Blake and Karen um, to provide some insights into the Communications Video and Technology Accessibility Act, or the CVTA. Uh, this, as Kim stated, this bill was initially introduced by Senator Markey, who is also the lead sponsor of the CVAA, uh, in November of 2022 in the Senate, as well as Representative Eshu from California in the House of Representatives. Some of the items that we will share and talk about today have been or are pending uh, edits to the bill that was introduced last year in the 117th Congress. And we are working toward bill introduction, uh, hopefully this summer here in the 118th Congress. So I'd like to start out with video programming accessibility, because as most people within ACB think about um, the Federal Communications Commission, the Communications Video Accessibility Act, and the CBTA, uh, a lot of it is about audio description. Uh, but first, I'm going to talk a little bit about closed captioning, just to, to switch it up on you. So within the CVAA, um, you know, many folks know that the CVAA allows captioning on television, but also some captioning on online content or uh, internet protocol delivered content. And that's because there, there's a requirement is if something has appeared on uh, television and then goes to an IP delivered service, it must be it just like it was captioned on television. It must be captioned online as well. Um, we're going to remove the requirement that if something is published or exhibited on television um, limitation because uh, captioning and audio description, uh, we don't want it to be limited only to uh, broadcast or cable television programming. We want it for all video content. So the CVTA, um, so the CV, CVTA uh, directs the FCT to, a, to adopt closed captioning rules for video programming delivered via internet protocol, and it brings audio description into parity with those closed captioning requirements. So there you go. Now I'm getting to the, the heart of the matter for the audio description project and many of our ACB members, having that parity with closed captioning, whether it's on television or delivered over internet protocol. There will be some economic burden exemptions, and those, those exist today um, for, for closed captioning as well as audio description. So we're going to carry that framework forward uh, because we, we know that that's a, a necessary requirement in some instances where it's not feasible uh, for captions or audio description to be provided. Specifically to IP-delivered video programming, uh, we want the FCC to define uh, the categories and responsible parties uh, for the programming of audio description. Uh, we want them to do this so that they can uh, maximize the delivery as well as the quality and integrity of audio description throughout the video supply chain. You know, in, in the IP space, Consumers, we interface with the, you know, the streaming companies, 
that are consumer facing, but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes with, with the studios, the production companies, um, the, the copyright licensees. And we want to make sure that everyone knows their responsibility for ensuring that audio described content reaches consumers. Uh, since 2010, there's also been tremendous growth in user-generated video content platforms. And we want to make sure that those platforms include easy-to-use authoring tools for uh, individuals or entities that are uh, creating videos and uploading them to user-generated video content platforms. Heck, Uh, The American Council of the Blind, we use these platforms. We use them to share content from our leadership conference, from our conference and convention, as well as special events throughout the year. And whether it's ACB or otherwise, um, entities and individuals should have the capability of adding audio description to their content when it is shared on user-generated content platforms, and it shouldn't be necessary to upload separate videos, some with accessibility and some without. Um, we also include a definition for user, uh, user-generated user video content. And in, a, in addition to the, the definition, there, there are a couple of exemptions related to uh, requiring audio description and captioning for user-generated video content. So if if an entity is creating uh, user-generated video content in the course of their regular business uh, and are otherwise covered under the act. So for example, if somebody's uh, showing content on on television, uh, whether broadcast cable or, or through streaming services, then they're covered under the act and their user-generated content must have audio description as well. If an entity is generating more than a million dollars in rent, excuse me, a million dollars in revenue from user-generated video content, then they would reach the threshold that they should be required to make their content accessible as well. So I know you want to share mom's cookie or grandma's cookie recipe with everyone. Well, if you're lucky enough that everyone loves your grandma's cookie recipe and you're now making over a million dollars from sharing sharing cookie recipes on user-generated video content platforms, uh, then I think it's a, a small price to pay that you're required to make that content in those videos accessible to everyone with captioning and audio description. What we hear the most about from our, our members are the, I don't want to say the, the shortcomings, but the opportunities to improve uh, the current audio description landscape. You know, the, the CVAA uh, was a, a phenomenal start that created the framework to deliver audio described content that ACB and others had been advocating for for so long. Uh, But we need the law to evolve and to give consumers 
uh, what they have grown to expect. So we currently have a rulemaking right now at the FCC that, uh, excuse me, so under the, the current CVAA, there's a limit on how many of the designated market areas for broadcasters around the country are required to pass through audio description. There's a current rulemaking at the FCC to expand the number of designated market areas that are required to pass through audio description, but they can only do this at 10 market areas per year, which means that the the final designated market areas would receive this requirement in 2035. Uh, The CVTA would speed up that timeline. It wouldn't require us to wait for more than a decade for everyone to be able to receive audio described content from their broadcasters. Uh, the CVTA requires audio description on television and IP delivered. Excuse me. The the CVTA would require uh, audio described content delivered over television as well as internet protocol to be labeled, searchable, discoverable, and available through apparatuses, navigation devices, and apps that show video programming. Uh, So what does that mean, right? Whether it's your TV, your set-top box, um, a streaming device, a mobile application, the audio-described content has to be labeled so that consumers can find it, they can navigate to it, and they can identify uh, the programming and the language track where audio description is available. Seems pretty straightforward, right? If all this content is being created, we want to know how to find it. We want to be able to have to access it. And in that regard, this legislation would also call for an audible tone to be added to programming. Much like there are maturity ratings on content that often shown in a, in a badge or an icon, same with the availability of closed captioning. Well, for a lot of folks, a visible badge identifying the availability of audio description uh, on screen or in a menu or in a listing uh, may not be accessible. And certainly if you're watching on linear programming uh, versus on demand, you want to know that when a show is starting, whether or not it has audio description available to you. So that's why an audible tone is so important. Hopefully someday our advocacy all pays off and we're in a world where all content is audio described. And then in that case, an audible tone won't be necessary because we'll just know that audio description is available because it's available everywhere for everything. Uh, The CVTA would require a dedicated audio description channel uh, if achievable. So in our, our current broadcast landscape. We have one secondary audio programming channel that's often shared between uh, a secondary language like Spanish language, or it's available for English audio description. But as many of us know, tuning into the Super Bowl, if you try to watch the, the game with English audio description, or even if you just want to catch some of the commercials that have English audio description available, you need to have on the Spanish language broadcast. That's not fair to us as audio description consumers. It's also not fair to our Spanish speaking audiences. Um, 
to have English audio description instead of Spanish. And hopefully someday we're in a world where there's Spanish dedicated channels for Spanish language audio description as well. This would also, the CVTA would also require the FCC to adopt rules for audio description, uh, audio description quality for key program elements, appropriate voicing, and editing and encoding. So we want to make sure that the audio description uh, is, is accurate, conveys the meaning of the visual elements of the programming, uh, but it, it's also in good audio quality, certainly audio quality comparable to other audiences and the uh, high quality of the production of the programming. At this point, and that's a lot about audio description. So at this point, I'll turn it over to Blake Reed to talk about video playback apparatuses. Well, hey, thanks, Clark. And uh, thanks to, to Kim for the generous introduction. I should say up front, um, my work on the CVTA has been uh, as outside counsel to telecommunications for the deaf and hard of hearing, Inc., TDI. Um, and my my opinions here today ought not be attributed to any of my uh, other affiliations. Um, with that, uh, so Clark has been walking through I, obviously, the the first title of the bill is all about um, the content of video programming and of the the supply of audio description um, with programming. But of course, um, we've got to uh, actually uh, have devices that uh, actually deliver programming to us, um, whether those are televisions or laptops or tablets or phones. Um, or the, the many other kinds of uh, devices that, that folks uh, use to consume video. Um, and an important part of the uh, accessibility of video is the features um, that are built into those devices, which uh, we, we have uh, in, in this law and in other laws, um, kind of an FCC speak, we call video playback apparatuses. All right. So what are the big changes that the CVTA brings to this area? Um, well, the CVAA, the previous law, had requirements for uh, voice controls uh, for uh, different kinds of devices, but there were some critical differences across different kinds of devices, including cable boxes and other kinds of set-top boxes. And so the CVTA harmonizes the requirements for voice controls to apply equally to all kinds of devices to ensure consistency. Um, the next big thing that we grapple with is remote controls, which are uh, a, a huge source of frustration and complaints for folks um, when trying to, to, to consume video programming and trying to uh, enable and customize uh, the settings for captions and audio description. And so the CVTA uh, tries to take a big, uh, a big stab at uh, how the controls uh, for, for playback devices work. Um, the first thing it does is it requires easy access to closed captions and audio description through dedicated activation and deactivation buttons if a device uses a remote control. And importantly, uh, the activation button for audio description uh, has to be tactilely accessible. So you should be able to feel on the remote um, where the button is to turn the audio description uh, on and off. Um, 
The second thing this uh, the CVTA does is requires the settings for uh, for captions and audio descriptions um, to be easily accessible. Again, through an easily uh, an easily locatable uh, and tactilely identifiable button uh, that will pop up uh, a menu that will allow you to cap uh, customize the caption and audio description settings. And an important aspect of what we're including in the CVTA um, is uh, the ability to customize the performance of audio descriptions. And one key aspect of the performance of audio description we heard a lot um, in developing the CVTA was the need to be able to adjust the volume of audio description separately from the main audio of the program track. So the CVTA will require uh, there to be an easy to access menu to be able to customize the, the volume of audio description. Now, I've been talking about devices with physical remote controls, but obviously there's some devices that don't work with that. So, for example, when you're on your laptop or you're on your tablet or your phone and the same requirements apply, it's just focused on having a button, key or icon um, that provides the ability to activate and customize captions and uh and audio description um right there in the interface so should hopefully uh be be an improvement on that front Another one that we heard a lot of complaints about um, are trying to get things set up with new devices, trying to get uh, audio description and captions turned on um, and customized with new devices. And so new devices or when devices are reset to factory settings will include as part of the flow that you go through when you're setting them up. They'll prompt you to turn on uh, audio description and customize the audio description uh, settings. So that's in there as well. Um, another big one that we heard, compatibility with assistive technology, refreshable Braille displays and that sort of thing um, is now going to be required for video playback apparatuses. Another feature of the bill. Um, another complicated issue that comes up is for folks who have uh, home theater setups with multiple devices or who have a TV that's uh, maybe plugged into a soundbar or a receiver um, that has multiple sources connected to it. Um, and this bill requires the FCC uh, to revisit um, requiring both caption and audio description data to be passed through that ecosystem so that if you customize the audio descriptions or the captions in one place, your TV, that should continue to work no matter where you get your video from, because all devices um, should be passing through audio description data um, through cables like the HDMI cables that you use to, to connect your devices. And then the last thing, and this just mirrors a requirement that Clark mentioned already for the video programming ecosystem, there's a lot of confusion about who is responsible in the ecosystem um, for complying with these requirements. So when you have a smart TV, it might be manufactured by one company, it might have an operating system from another company, it might be running an application from yet a third company. And so there's a lot of confusion about who's 
responsible and inconsistent approaches to activating and customizing caption and audio description settings on the devices. And so this part of the bill requires the FCC to allocate specific responsibilities for different entities in the chain so that there's no longer the sort of questions about who's responsible. Um, we'll have some some clear rules of the road for manufacturers and, and other vendors uh, to fall. With that, that's it for video playback apparatuses. So we're going to shift gears and talk about video conferencing. And for that, I will hand it over to Karen. Thank you. Thank you, Blake. And again, thank you, Kim, for that lovely introduction. Um, it's great to be here. I've spoken to this group many, many times, and I'm so thrilled to be back. Um, so I'm going to be talking about three things, video conferencing, the National Deafline Equipment Distribution Program, and telecommunications relay services, as they will extend to people who are both deaf and blind. Starting with video conferencing, um, many of you are aware that the FCC issued rules in 20. 2011 to implement the CVAA on advanced communication services. And when it did that, it had uh, it had a dilemma. The, the term video conferencing service is was defined into the CVAA as a form of advanced communication services. But at the very last minute, before we got the bill enacted, the word interoperable was put in front of video conferencing service. And to be honest with you, even those of us who had written it, the, the bill did not know what it meant. And the FCC certainly did not know what it meant because there was no legislative history on this. There was no guidance at all from Congress. The implementation of the Advanced Communication Services um, portion of the CVA was overwhelming. Um, I was at the FCC at the time, and it, it, for those of you who have read the document, and probably few have because it's 300 pages long. So basically what we did at that time was we punted. I, I take full part, partial blame for just saying we can't figure this one out. Okay, the difference was that back in 2011, Video conferencing was basically Skype. So it wasn't a big deal. And for many, many years, it didn't matter that much that we hadn't decided this. Of course, all of this changed with the onset of COVID, of the onset of the, of the pandemic, when people realized that they were living in a virtual world and video communication services became critical to a literal our, our every everyday life. Um, so over the next few years, as you know, last three years, many problem, a host of problems started coming up. Many platforms didn't offer automated captions for, for people who are deaf. People couldn't effectively connect to assistive services. Screen readers weren't. Um, the, the material on the screen wasn't accessible. I know that there's problems with accessing chat information while other matters are going on on the phone call on on a video conferencing call and, and i don't have to tell you the list the lot we started getting a laundry list of problems so one of the first things that we did was incorporate this issue into the cvta now at the same time the fcc when um just chairwoman jessica rosenworcel came in not too long after she began her tenure she they issued a request for comment on what should be changed with respect to the implementation their implementation of the cvaa 
And Blake led, led a large uh, coalition of organizations in providing an exhaustive list of everything that we wanted changed. One of the things was video conferencing. Over the last three years, not a whole lot happened on it, but on June 8th, the FCC adopted new rules requiring uh, that video conferencing be accessible. The problem was without knowing what interoperable was, the FCC didn't know how wide its coverage of video conferencing systems should be. And so there were various theories and none of them seemed to work to cover everything. Everything from um, things like WebEx, web webinar type communications, um, to FaceTime, to Google Meet, to what we're on now, Zoom, to Microsoft Teams. I mean, I could go on Blue Jeans. It's just such a long list. The new rules are are going to apply what are called the performance objectives that apply to requirements, uh, the CVAA requirements to make uh, video conference systems fully accessible to people with disabilities. So this was a huge, huge victory. Tremendous credit goes to Blake and, and his team of students um, for, for all the work that they did. In the meantime, we still have this in the bill. So we're kind of going down two paths. Now, um, I know that this is supposed to be an update on the CBAA, but I just want to briefly tell you that the FCC is going to be getting comments on this. They're going to be asking for comments on this. And um, I will tell you what we've put in the bill. And you may want to think about suggesting to the FCC that they do the same, because the more that they can do, the easier it will be for us to get other parts of the bill passed. It will become a smaller bill. So we're hoping, I mean, the FCC already took a giant step. And they are going to apply the general rules that require devices and services to be operable without vision um, to uh, the video conferencing platforms that are now out there and, and in the future. But they all also ask about specific performance objectives that are needed above these more general objectives. And that's where you all come in, get your typewriters your your um computers ready and send in comments so here's what here's what the bill has in it right now it has um requirements for um built-in closed captioning technology it does not yet have but will hopefully have by the end of the summer a requirement for built-in visual image descriptive functionality. That is a term that we made, a term of art that we sort of designed ourselves to describe the kinds of services that provide real-time descriptions of visual information, including images and text for the purpose of conveying the descriptions to people who are blind or low vision along the lines of IRA and um, Be My Eyes. And I, I don't endorse any of those. And by the way, I am uh, representing communication service for the deaf in this presentation. Um, and we don't want to endorse any particular services, but you'll understand better what I'm talking about when I'm referring to visual image descriptive services since we made up the term. Um, we had to be careful not to, we, we didn't want it to say video description because that's a whole different type of service. So that's why we use that. 
Um, there would also be a requirement for these video conferencing systems to enable the interconnection of assistive technologies, services, devices, and uh, end-user equipment, including third-party captioning and interpreting services, relay services, screen readers, and refreshable displays. That is what is in the current bill that was introduced in November of 22. We are adding to that third-party visual image descriptive services. So if you're on a call and you want to call somebody in to read, for example, a PowerPoint or a provide a description of other visual activities going on during a video conferencing call. That's what that would refer to. The built-in visual image descriptive functionality would probably be using AI. So just the way there's automatic speech recognition for captioning now, some of the services and descriptive services are now starting to use AI to describe automatically described. So there's two different things that we would be requiring. Um, it would also require... Um, users and uh, communication assistants and potentially some of these other entities to control the activation and customization of the accessible features, accessibility features, such as captioning, description, and the display of interpreters. This is important because right now, a lot of the controls are in the host's um, capability and they're not in the people that are participating do not have the capability to activate or deactivate accessibility features. And that's something that's very important. The last thing that the um, act would do is it would task an advisory committee to help develop recommendations to guide the commission, <laughs> to guide the commission's rulemaking on these topics, but we do have a rulemaking already. So, so a little, this was literally, this, this is front page news that the FCC is looking at this again. One of the other things that the FCC asks in its proceeding is whether text to speech and captions along with compatibility and refreshable braille displays and other peripheral device devices will make uh, video conferencing systems accessible for people who are deafblind. So that's something else that you may want to comment on. Um, okay, so that's video conferencing. I'm now going to turn to the National Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program. This is one of my favorite programs ever. Um, we created it in the CVAA to distribute um, equipment that is used for advanced communication services, telecommunication services, and internet access services uh, to low-income people who are deafblind. Now, once again, uh, there was a word there that was added at the last minute, not in the original draft, and that's the word low income. We did not intend for that to stay in the bill um, or to be put into the bill, but it was. Um, it was better than nothing, so we accepted it, but we would like to take that out. So one of the things that the CBTA does is it would take out the word low income. Um, when I was at the FCC, we tried to stretch that as much as we could. We made it low income four times the poverty level, um, but um, it, it's, uh, it's still an uh, it's, it's still a limiting factor because when people get jobs, then they fall out of the program and they still need the equipment, especially given the fact if they're, if they're not earning a, a living wage, if they're not earning enough money. So um, it also, the, the CVTA would also um, clarify that uh, people that have um, a, let's see, an audit, a, a speech disability or an auditory processing disorder 
Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's that's the wrong one. I got mixed up. Sorry. Um, it clarifies that people with cortical, cerebral, visual impairments and or auditory processing disorders are also eligible to receive equipment and related services under the program. And you may know that the program doesn't only provide equipment, it actually provides training and other kinds of supports. Um, the um, people who are eligible, the eligibility is determined right now by a definition in the helicalis in the Helen Keller Act. Um, and it was not, while we think that it might cover these populations, these two, two additional groups, it wasn't clear that it would. So this makes that very clear. It also, um, the CBTA would also authorize the distribution of software. Right now, only equipment is mentioned. Again, in my opinion, software is already covered, but again, it's to make sure that it's, that it's, um, definitely permissible to give out that kind of, uh, product to people. And last, it, the CBTA would increase the annual allocation, which is now 10, up to $10 million a year from the Telecommunications Relay Service Fund to $20 million a year. And that would, and would also add an annual inflation factor um, because the cost of products are going goes up. So um, this would also provide, help to provide additional funding because we're taking out the low income limitations. So hopefully more people will join the program, but it, it's been a hugely successful program. Um, I know that it's changed people's lives and um, who had never had any access at all to this type of uh, telecommunications and um, advanced communication services equipment. So I'm hoping we can make these changes, which I think are fairly modest and it will only improve the program. The last thing that I wanted to talk about is a change to the telecommunications relay service program. For those of you who are not familiar with relay services, they facilitate calls between right now people who are deaf or hard of hearing or deafblind uh, or who have a speech disability or an auditory processing disorder that part would be added to communicate with other parties on a call and typically for example there's a relay operator often an interpreter who will sign for uh, or interpret between a sign language user and a hearing person that's just one example there's many different kinds and what we want to do is we want to direct the fcc in the cvta to define as one of the services eligible for funding support, uh, skilled users of uh, American Sign Language communication facilitators who are skilled users of American Sign Language who can facilitate the ability of a deaf person to talk on the telephone by conveying the information either through close vision or American Sign Language. Um, the big difference between this and What's done now is that the individual would have to go to the person's location. Um, and so that's the FCC has shot, has stopped short of requiring communication facilitators. But as a consequence, people who are deafblind don't have access to relay services. So that concludes my section for now. And I am going to kick it back to Blake. Well, thanks, Karen. And for folks patiently waiting for a chance to ask questions, we're, we're winding to the the tail end of this. So you've just got a couple little little tidbits here at the end, and then we'll uh, we'll wind it up and, and Tim will turn us to, to questions. Um, but the the last couple of sections of the bill are, are pretty important. And, and one of them is focused on emerging technology. 
And you may have asked yourself the question as we've been talking. Well, gosh, we did this big legislation in 1996. We did another big piece of big legislation in 2010. Here we are in 2023 talking about doing yet another version of this legislation. Can't we do more to, to future-proof this? And while no legislation is is fully future-proof, this was a you know a, a problem that we tried to think uh, hard about in in crafting this bill. And so uh, there's a a title of the CVTA that requires the FCC to periodically uh, prepare a report for uh, the relevant House and Senate committees on accessibility barriers with emerging technology uh, in communications and video programming. And that includes technology and uh, the statute specifically calls out um, augmented reality, virtual reality, extended reality, artificial intelligence, and other advanced machine learning, um, robotics, the Internet of Things, and broadly all other forms of advanced computing power. And it calls on the FCC to identify solutions to those accessibility barriers. It also calls on the FCC, and this was another piece of feedback we got in crafting the bill, um, to focus on uh, the impacts of emerging technology on specific uh, communities that are that are often particularly marginalized, um, including folks with limited English abilities, folks with speech and communication disabilities, um, those who lack access to broadband, and those who face intersectional discrimination, um, such as uh, race and disability discrimination. Uh, uh, discrimination. And most importantly, the section then gives the ability for the commission to update its existing regulations, all of what we have spent spent the last uh, b- bit here talking about today, uh, to update those regulations uh, to govern emerging technology as is necessary to, to meet its mandate under, under the existing law. So we hope this will give the bill uh, some serious legs as, uh, as new technology uh, unfolds to, for, the, for the commission to keep going back and keep assessing um, how things are changing. One last thing I'll say, and then I'll turn it over to, to Clark to close us out, um, is there's a, 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 an edit to the FCC's enforcement abilities that we think is actually going to be really important uh, in the long run. Um, there's currently a requirement in the Communications Act that restricts the FCC's ability to engage in enforcement uh, against entities that don't have a license, like a wireless transmission license or a cable franchise or some other uh, sort of license or franchise agreement with the FCC. And that didn't matter so much 25 years ago or 30 years ago when the 1996 Telecom Act uh, was passed because most of the companies uh, that were covered, the broadcasters and cable companies and telecom companies, all had business with uh, regular business with the FCC. But many of the entities that we've talked about today um, are entities that that don't have a lot of business before the FCC. They're uh, they're internet companies that aren't governed by uh, by the FCC's licensing and franchising regimes. So the important thing that this bill does is it allows the FCC to do full fledged enforcement actions um, against companies uh, for violations of accessibility rules, even if they don't have business regular business before the commission. 
submission, which we think is going to be really important, uh, particularly in the context of emerging technology as new, uh, new companies, new vendors, new actors enter the space with new technology. Um, and that, that doesn't get used as a, a, a way to tie the FCC's hands when, when rules aren't getting followed. So we're excited about that. Um, with that, Clark, I'll turn it over to you for our final uh, piece on advisory committees. Thank you, Blake. And yes, advisory committees, everyone's favorite, right? Uh, the ACB is represented on several FCC advisory committees and was represented on advisory committees stemming from the Communications and Video Accessibility Act. Uh, here, the FCC will create multi-stakeholder advisory committees uh, for the development of the closed captioning and audio description requirements. Uh, why is this important? And why is this important to do uh, prior to creating the new regulations, right? Well, as much as possible, if we can bring together stakeholders such as uh, programmers, streaming providers, uh, caption and description service providers, along with people with disabilities, whether from the deaf, hard of hearing, deaf, blind, uh, blind and low vision communities. And if we're able to reach consensus, that is something that we can take off the FCC's plate. I think in a, an example of this, as our coalition at ACB working with our partners like Communication Services for the Deaf, and uh, Blake Reed in his capacity as outside counsel for telecommunications for the deaf and other organizations, we've, we've been holding education sessions with members of industry, whether streaming providers, telecommunications companies, cable programmers, broadcasters, uh, or the, the device manufacturers, the, the high tech companies. And Something that came up during those conversations, you know, Blake was talking about digital apparatuses and uh, remotes and accessing the accessibility features like captioning and audio description. Well, many of the folks from industry wanted to have follow on dialogues about those requirements. You know, what if what if in the future we move beyond a world where remote controls or physical buttons are used to interact uh, with these devices or video user interfaces. It's like, okay, this is a this is an important question, right? If the rest of the world's not using remotes, we don't want to still have to use remotes. Um, so in these conversations, you know, we're able to have a dialogue around what would gesture control look like or voice uh, command look like for these devices. In some cases, they're already used. So these are the sorts of conversations that these multi-stakeholder advisory groups are designed to hold so that best case scenario, we come up with a consensus, we can share that to the commission, and that can be what what is adopted. The alternative to that is Either we don't have a dialogue, we don't reach consensus, we file comments with opposing viewpoints, and then the FCC has to uh, you know, be King Solomon and, and split the baby to make nobody happy, right? So as much as we want, we want to embrace our core values, we want to collaborate, 
And we want to reach consensus uh, to move these issues forward in a way that's beneficial for our corporate partners and especially for our members and people with disabilities. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Kim Charles. Thank you, Clark. And thank you, Karen and Blake. That was really um, an amazing overview in about 40 minutes, 45 minutes to the CVTA and all the important work that's going on between consumers, advocates, allies, and the FCC and industry. So we um, specifically made some time so that we can take questions from attendees today. So I'm going to hand it over to Monica to explain how you go about asking a question, and we'll start that part of our wind down for the program today. Okay, well, we do have a question from Greg. Three items. First off, just to give you a touch of my background, I've been involved with emergency management since uh, the late 60s. And so related to the new technology aspect of of uh, emergency management there's there's a couple of things that are concerning to me one is uh and i don't know if you're familiar with uh with uh go to federal regulations title 47 part 2 but it specifically deals with communications in an emergency or disaster setting. And one of the things that I am seeing right now is our emergency alert system and the ESF2 uh, regulations do not require accessibility. And so as an example, uh, I was on a NIMS call, the National Incident Management System, for those that don't know the acronym, and they're talking about, well, since everybody has cell phones now, they want to get rid of a lot of the older technologies that were actually accessible. And the, the assumption is then, well, everybody's going to have a, a phone of some sorts and can get all their alerts on the phone. Well, that kind of works, but there's still a percentage of people in this country that don't even have phones that are going to get left out in the dark. And so that's one, one big concern I have that's kind of related to what you guys are talking about today, indirectly, I suppose. The other concern I have is there's this trend which we've seen occur over the years where people have moved from buttons to some type of touch-sensitive, be it capacitive or resistive type button. So there's no tactile ability for a person that's blind uh, or deafblind to, or, or even that might have a physical disability uh, to, to interact with a device like a television or whatever the case, a monitor on a computer. Uh, it frustrates me to no end when you have people putting uh, light gray and black labels, which are totally unreadable by seniors for the first for the for the first part, and completely inaccessible to the rest of us. And so the the concern there is now Apple and other vendors are moving away from these touch buttons 
to brand new technologies that uh, are going to basically eliminate 100% of the buttons on the majority of our mobile devices. And if you look at diseases like Parkinson's or uh, essential tremors, and there's a lot of other motor and cognitive diseases that can come into play here, you, you've got a situation where uh, the, the world is moving towards uh, all these changes in order to make things cheaper, make things better in their mind, but they're not taking into account the actual users that have these accessibility needs. And my last point has to do with the color blue. Uh, There seems to have been a massive trend for decades now that all the appliances and devices that we're using are using a blue light. And the problem is that that blue light can actually trigger seizures in people uh, and even people that are blind that may have slight light perception can be affected by that. Myself, whenever I'm exposed to a blue light, I get a migraine headache that can last one or two weeks. So I've literally put masking tape over all the lights on all my devices so it doesn't trigger that type of an issue. So those are more comments and questions, but I'd love to hear your responses and feedback. This is Clark. I'm happy to jump in and and take the uh, emergency information question, and then I'll turn it to Blake for the uh, digital apparatus component. Um, So there are requirements for accessible emergency alerts um, to be provided. There are requirements for accessible emergency alerts to be passed through by all broadcasters on the secondary audio uh, programming channel. If uh, there is the potential for a waiver, uh, one that I am unaware of any broadcaster applying for, if they don't have the technical capabilities to pass through uh, accessible emergency alerts. So the audio of the the text scroll that's displayed on the screen. Uh, Since the, the CVAA, there has also been the requirement for any uh, dynamic images that are displayed without text to be made accessible for people who are blind and low vision as well. Um, There's been an ongoing debate on whether that is technically feasible, and there's been a waiver granted by the FCC for a number of years, uh, a waiver that was supported by the American Foundation for the Blind and the American Council of the Blind for, uh, in in part, over uh, several periods over the past eight years. The, the last waiver was for five years, and we still haven't seen any progress from the broadcast industry on making those dynamic images accessible. That waiver was up for renewal here this spring. Uh, we filed comments in, in opposition and met with the broadcasters and met with the Federal Communications Commission. The result is Uh, Unfortunately, another 18-month waiver, but uh, that is shorter than what the broadcasters were seeking. And there are also requirements for the broadcasters to report and meet with uh, consumer organizations on a quarterly basis to make progress in this regard. Um, So there are, again, there are requirements for the accessibility of uh, 
emergency alert information. Um, those requirements are, are not going anywhere. They, they do exist for broadcasters. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that we were clear on that point. And I'll turn it over to Blake about the uh, the elimination of buttons on digital apparatuses. Uh, thanks, Clark, for handing the tough one over to me. Um, and, and, and many thanks for the, for the question. Um, I, I guess I'd respond to it in a in a couple of ways. Um, you're getting at some some hard and and unsolved issues in accessibility policy, and one of them is that we don't have a general purpose accessibility law in this country, or I think just about anywhere else in the world, um, that applies to devices broadly speaking. So the Americans with Disabilities Act requires the accessibility of places and services and programs offered by the government and accessibility of, of, of employment. Um, but it doesn't get directly to devices, right? It's only indirectly as, as devices are used in those contexts um, does it get there. So there's no direct regulation there. The FCC's regulations, and and this bill is no exception, um, have been tailored to the FCC's areas of communications and video technology. Now, that covers a lot, right? Uh, that uh, I think what we've talked through today, think about tactile buttons, for example, in places where we still have buttons. Um, so, for example, you know, remote controls, we're looking really hard at issues of, of tactility. Um, the, but in general, there's this, what we might call the Internet of Things, broadly speaking. There's no accessibility law for the Internet of Things. There's no um, governing body um, to, to, to cover that. Um, and that's, that's just a huge challenge. And I guess what I would say about the shift away from buttons to tactile interfaces, I agree with the concerns you've raised there. And I would just say that horse is out of the barn since Apple released the iPhone in 2007, the massive shift in the, you know, handset industry towards and and more broadly in the personal computing industry towards devices that use touch screens without tactile buttons and use resistive buttons and, and that sort of thing, as you suggest. That's just an enormous trend and not one that we've been able to to sort of reverse. So you know, the ways we're thinking about that now are coming at it through integration with assistive technology, making sure that you can interoperate these devices with screen readers, refreshable braille displays, and and that sort of thing. But just to say, I, I agree with the, the concern that you raised. And, you know, this this bill doesn't solve all those problems. All right. Thank you for those answers. Other questions, Monica? Yes, we have one from Kim Carmichael. Um, I noticed that you said that um, the bill proposes that we have a dedicated channel for audio description. What I'm wondering is, would that solve the problem that we have now of having to choose between having audio description and having Dolby Atmos? Because, you know, you have to choose one or the other at this point. So thank you. Uh, this is Clark. I, I'm happy to take that question. So that's it. Uh, I think that's a uh, a related but different question. Um, 
but certainly one that is is highly relevant to the the conversation and, and I think touched on by another aspect. Um, so we we talked about the FCC creating rules for the the quality and the engineering of audio description, and certainly that would cover the the question that you're raising. You know the. In some instances, it is a, a limitation of technology that we have to make a choice of having uh, audio description in mono or mono uh, converted into stereo sound um, from our, you know, from our over-the-air broadcasters. That's a technical limitation that might be um, fixed through innovations in the future, but. In the IP environment, in the streaming environment, it's not a technical limitation. It can be done. Some people, uh, some services are doing it today. So anywhere that a program is provided in Dolby Atmos or in surround sound, um, we want comparable quality in the delivery of audio description as well. And we think that the, the current language here in the bill will help us get there. I would add, Clark, this is Kim, that um, the the next panel at the 2.30 time slot this afternoon is um, moderated by Carl Richardson with, I believe, eight representatives from streaming services. And I have a pretty strong inkling that sound quality of audio description will come up as a question for for those people who are the representatives from streaming services. So you may want to tune in to hear what they have to say about what they are doing or planning on doing in this in this arena, because it is a hot topic for us right now. I mean, of all people who who view television, blind people, blind and low vision people want nice quality to our sound. It's important to us and it and it should be. And we should be able to have it. So we shouldn't be restricted to giving up high quality for audio description and making those choices. So tune in the the streaming panel later today, and I think you'll get more information. And Kim, just real quick before you move on, I want to commend Clark and ACB who have been really staunch advocates of what sounds like a pretty technical issue, but in reality affects a huge part of the experience if you use audio description, which is this this idea that the audio description be encoded in the same format so that you don't have to make those those choices. And so there there's explicit language in the bill to ad- address this problem, and that's all all thanks to to, to Clark and, and ACB's work. Thank you, Blake. All right. Other questions, Monica? Gregory has his hand up again. Can I just can I just add something to the last, yes. last point? And and if we can take a question from someone who hasn't had that opportunity, we should try to do that. Karen, this is Karen. Um, I I just want to mention that um, the FCC currently has sufficient authority to develop quality regulations. So that just keep that in mind. We don't know what's going to happen to this bill. We are really hoping that it gets enacted, but that should not stop you from also going to the FCC. In 2014, after a 10-year effort, the FCC adopted very comprehensive quality 
requirements for closed captioning. Um, there was nothing new to the bill, to the Communications Act that prompted that. It was actually a petition by consumer groups. So there's a, a second avenue. Just it's important to keep that in mind. When we write these bills, we kind of just go for broke. We kind of just say, okay, just get it out there. And then we let the FCC resolve all the details. This is a really important detail that no one was focused on it when we wrote the CVAA. It was just make sure it's a requirement. But as time goes on, the details become more and more important. And the FCC has a lot of authority to deal with them. Thank you. That's a very good point. Okay, Monica. The only hand I see is Gregory's. Then we will take his follow-up question. And you have about eight minutes. Thank you. Uh, There's another hand, too. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, Greg, we can go first and then... We'll we'll go first, Greg, but let's keep it short to make sure that we can get that other question in. Thanks. Not a problem. So, with respect to Clark's comments, uh, if you look at things like emergency alert radios, none of them whatsoever have any accessibility at all. That's just one of a dozen examples I could give, but I won't consume the group's time in that respect. Um, so that that was kind of my only real feedback there, I suppose. Well, Greg, it's quite clear that, that you have a lot of knowledge in this area, so I'm sure that outlining some of um, some of your knowledge would help us as advocates sitting at the table with industry, the FCC, and others to um, to to bring up some of these points. So please um, share some of those concerns and, and specifics with um, with Clark at advocacy at acb.org. and that will help us a lot to to move some of these issues forward. Okay, Monica, let's take that other question. Terrell. Yes, this is Terrell. Um, so I have been dealing with an issue for uh, a year or two, actually, with I use a direct TV stream, but I've, I know that this also flags uh, YouTube TV as well. Whenever I go to the secondary audio programming channel on my ABC affiliate, there's simply silence. And their response to that is, well, because it's streamed, there's no legal uh, recourse, you know, th- there's no uh, legal requirement uh, for them to uh, provide this. But this also falls under the fact that <clears throat> emergency alerts are not provided as well <clears throat> through DirecTV Stream or YouTube TV. So uh, they're saying basically that, you know, because the CVTA is not passed, um, Sorry about your luck, pretty much. Any thoughts, comments on that? Uh, Terrell, this is Clark. I'd say that that is a, a frustration shared by by many. Um, you know, when, when the Communications Video Accessibility Act was passed, Netflix wasn't even showing shows straight to, to streaming. House of Cards, I believe, was their first show direct to the streaming platform in 2013. Um, so like, like Blake was saying, we can't foresee how the industry is going to evolve in the future. So the requirements were focused on broadcast and cable programming. Um, obviously, streaming providers and internet protocol delivered content has 
become just as mainstream as broadcast and cable programming. And that those very instances that you are experiencing and so many others are experiencing are, are exactly what we are working on accomplishing with this legislation. You know, we, we need legislation to expand the, the scope of what the FCC is authorized to do to expand the requirements of the entities that are covered and the stories that you and so many others are, are sharing on the ADP discussion list or sharing with the FCC are very helpful in, in helping us make that point. So uh, thank you for your advocacy in this space as well. Absolutely. Very quickly, uh, do you know, do you have a projected time of when this will come before the uh, FCC or before Congress, or do you, do you know? Well, oh, we had to look into our crystal that, ball there. <laughs> no, these, we, we got the bill re- introduced last year. Our, our goal here in the 118th Congress is reintroduction and to build the number of co-sponsors. Uh, last year when the bill was introduced, it, it, was, it was not bipartisan. And that's certainly a goal. The, the CVAA was a bi- bipartisan bill that was passed by unanimous consent. That, that is our goal here. We think that this is a bipartisan issue. Certainly it impacts people with disabilities in red states, blue states, urban centers, and rural America as well. But we need to get the bill reintroduced. We need to build our co-sponsors. And then once the bill is passed, then it'll become a matter of implementing the regulations there at the FCC. Uh, Blake, you've got a, I believe you compare this to a pie eating contest when you're working on legislation and the legislation becomes regulation. Yeah, there will uh, there will always be more work um, in implementing even even when this legislation gets passed. There's going to be a lot of work in the advisory committees um, and in front of the FCC doing rulemakings. So you know, sustained engagement is going to be important to get all of these ideas across the finish line. I just want to quick say though, Terrell, that sucks. I, I, I'm sorry that you got that response. Um, it's not, it's not necessarily correct. It's not necessarily correct response. There, there may be some obligations. And you, guys, you have two minutes. Thank you. I, I'll just, I'll just say it's a contemptible response. It's worth uh, complaining to the FCC about. It's worth naming, naming and shaming on social media, and it's worth um, when Clark uh, reaches out to you uh, with uh, the, with ACB's efforts to uh, support this bill and get it across the finish line. That's the kind of story that's really important um, for people to hear. And anyway, I just wanted to say I'm I sorry. Wanna, I just want to chime in really quickly. This is Karen, and I don't know exactly about what the whole situation is about, but there are obligations that go further for emergency access than just for audio description. Yeah. So, you know, just keep that in mind. And if if in doubt as to whether or not a particular cable or satellite service should be at least passing through the emergency um, information, please, please, please file complaints with the FCC. They're waiting for complaints to come in. Absolutely. All right. I want to thank our panelists for all this fantastic information that you've shared today and for your ongoing commitment to um, video communication, technology, accessibility, which is amazing. So thank you again to all of you. Monica? 
I would like to give the credits. Yes. CEUs. Yes. Uh, the closing CEU code is 27705. Again, that is 27705. Thank you again to everyone for attending today. Thank you for having us. Everyone have a great rest of your convention, and I'll be closing the room. Thank you, Monica. You're welcome.